We are going to just uh, jump right in with our lecture tonight. Um, again, we spent the first half, uh, five weeks, uh, laying out a foundation of a biblical view of, of, uh, of a sexual ethic. And we focused very heavily on God's purpose and the design in creation. Um, the second half, we're going, okay, so what about people who find themselves for uh, a litany of reasons outside of God's design? Last night, we spoke about singleness and how that's redeemed in Jesus Christ. Tonight, we'll talk about homosexuality. Um, Next week, we'll talk about both intersex and transgender conditions, um, but again, our topic for tonight is homosexuality. Now, if you've been paying attention, uh, we've already seen that a sexual relationship between two people of the same sex doesn't meet the standard of the biblical sexual ethic. In fact, if we just review the three facets we've seen of sexuality, the fact that it is erotic and embodied, the fact that it is unitive and relational, and the fact that it is procreative and social, uh, we will see uh, that we've already kind of explored these things. When it comes to the embodied nature of sexuality, the problem with homosexuality is it goes against God's, God's design in denying the gender of your partner is an essential part of who they are. Now that might actually sound a little counterintuitive because the attraction is to a gender because it is that gender and not the other, right? Um, but what I'm suggesting is, uh, is that in um, going against the grain of what male needs, which is female, and what female needs, which is male in design, um, we end up treating our, our same-sex partners unlike their actual gender. Um, we'll see this even with the wording of Leviticus, uh, which suggests a homosexual relationship in the language of lying with a man as with a woman, right? Do you see the relationship that gender plays in that? Um, the sexual act is not only reliant on the complementarity of the genders, it also affirms those genders in the actual self, okay? And so the sexual act affirms the maleness and femaleness of two partners, as the smallest unit of community, this one flesh union needs both genders to truly deal with the aloneness of Adam as male. Okay? Uh, when we look at relational sexuality, we find the same thing. For the covenant of marriage to exist, as we saw, both genders need to be represented. Only then is there a helper suitable who is connecto, both like and opposite of Adam. We saw the same thing with procreation or social sexuality. Only a heterosexual marriage fits, uh, you know, is fitted to the reality proclaimed in procreation. In fact, it's worth reminding you, but every person, heterosexual or homosexual, is the byproduct of heterosexual procreation. Okay? There are only children, as we talked about, through the joining of one male sperm, uh, uh, sperm there in the collective sense, and one woman's egg. Okay. Remember, we saw that this is significant even without a relationship that leads to the birth of actual children because shared biological purpose uh, is a uniquely biological way of unifying two people. 
The sexual act, uh, other sexual acts, if you will, besides coitus, do not engage both bodies in a shared bodily purpose, the purpose of procreation. Um, just by way of reminder again, relationship of two men, two women, or more than two, whatever their moral status, cannot be marriages because they lack this inherent link to procreation. Any sexual act they involve, in addition to not being organic bodily unions, will not be ordered to procreation, so they will not embody a commitment ordered to family life, a marital commitment. Unsurprisingly, in the common law traditions, only coitus, not mutual stimulation by other means, even between a legally wedded man and woman, has been recognized as consummating a marriage. Okay. And so when we look at all three facets, we see, uh, we see a problem, but we also saw that gender runs through all th three of these things as well as is primary in the archetypes uh, of gender, specifically male-female, husband-wife, mother and father, which are all, by nature, heterosexual pairings. Homosexual marriages cannot, for example, properly image Christ and the church through gendered married roles. Okay? A family built on homosexual marriage cannot affirm the value of both genders in parenting as mother and father okay? um, because they lack that difference. As uh, what is marriage says here, if same-sex relationships are recognized as marriages, not only will the norms that keep marriages stable be undermined, but the notion that men and women bring different gifts to parenting will not be reinforced by any civil institution. As we talked about, the government has always had an interest in families because families don't just make children, they make citizens. Okay? So they have a vested interest in a stable place to make good citizens, and so because of that, they have provided specific status as well as particular protections to marriage. But one of the statuses and protections that they, they voice in doing so is the value that men and women collectively but distinctively bring to the raising of a child. The design of Genesis 1 and 2, which is really just everything I've just talked about, right? We haven't really had to move away from Genesis 2. Uh, when we look at it thoroughly, it speaks strongly against same-sex sexual relationships. In the words of Robert Gagnon, an alternate pattern of sexuality requires an alternate creation myth. Okay? However, Saying that it does not seem well-suited to God's design is not the same thing as asking, does the Bible directly prohibit homosexual sexual relationships? And I know that's a wordy way to put it, but that's one of the biggest problems we have in these conversations is that we don't take the time to say what we actually mean. Okay? So there are plenty of non-sexual same-sex relationships that we should be positive about, okay? But homosexual same-sex relationships, the question becomes, does the Bible explicitly condemn, and listen to my carefulness and wording again, committed, faithful, loving same-sex relationships, okay? Does the Bible actually address relationships between a man and a man or a woman and a woman that are committed, that are exclusive, i.e. faithful, and, uh, and are... Um, uh, what was the last word? I'd, and loving. Okay. There are six passages that seem to address homosexuality in the Bible, 
But some argue that they aren't referring to relationships that are between people with a homosexual orientation, one, that are consensual and that are committed or non-idolatrous, okay? Which is just a shorthand for recognizing that one of the sexual sins we see in the Bible is cult, uh, cultic prostitution, right? Which is not just a sexual act, but one that's taken on religious and pagan religious significance at that. And so again, the question becomes, do these six passages actually apply to what we're talking about when we talk about, for example, gay marriage today? And that is a tremendously important question. Okay? In fact, this is a standard practice we must engage in any time we start with the Bible in its context and move to our context. Just by way of illustrating... In most of your Bible translations, in 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul is uh, delineating specific sinful identities that will not inherit the kingdom of God, most of your translations say, nor homosexuals. Okay? Now, the challenge with that translation is there is no Greek comparative term for what we mean when we say someone who experiences a homosexual orientation. The word there, as we'll see tonight, is actually a combo word, a uh, compound word that comes from the word for man and the word to bed, okay? So if we were to be very literal in our translation, it's man betters, okay? It's speaking there of something that implies action, not orientation. That's significant, and it's a place where we go wrong in just assuming a one-to-one -one relationship between then and now, between there and here. Uh, and so it's worth reviewing these things and doing the hard work of going, what exactly is the Bible addressing here, and how does that uh, connect with what exactly we are talking about in our day? Here are the six passages, okay? Uh, the first one is Genesis 19, the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There are two passages in Leviticus, Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, that are both part of the Old Testament law. There's Romans chapter 1, where Paul presents his condemnation of the whole world so that he can present God's provision of a Savior in Jesus Christ. There's 1 Corinthians 6, which I just mentioned, as well as 1 Timothy 1, which are both viceless right? Junk drawer lists of particular sinful behaviors that uh, we have to stop and say, okay, why is the author using this list and not just notice that it's a list of sins? What we're going to do tonight to begin with is to look at them in turn. And instead of starting in Genesis, I actually want to start in Leviticus, okay? So we're going to look first at Leviticus 18 um, and 20, okay? Here is Leviticus 18 22. You shall not lie with a male, as with a woman, it is an abomination. Now, in the context here, the majority of Leviticus 18 is a list of sexual immorality to be avoided, and it begins and ends with a call not to be like the Egyptians and the Canaanites. Okay? In verse 3, as the chapter opens, God says, I am holy. You are my people. Do not be like the Egyptians. Okay, then there's a list of things, including verse 22 that we talked about here. And then it finishes again, again emphasizing do not be like the Egyptians. What is a reasonable conclusion to draw 
by looking at the fact that it begins and ends that way. That primarily the focus here is on the uniqueness of Israel's calling, specifically in issues of sexuality. In fact, uh, uh, this particular sexual sin is not the only sexual sin on the list. And so it begins, in fact, most of it is focused on incest. Sexual relationships within the boundaries of a family. And then following that is sex during menstruation. Okay. Then there is adultery proper. Verse 21 involves child sacrifice. Then we have 22, you shall not lie as a male with a woman. And then finally we have sex with animals known as bestiality. Okay. And so it is one of a collection of behaviors that is condemned, and at the beginning and the end, there is this connection to being different than the Egyptians. Now, who are the odd men out on this list? Two very easily to draw attention to. The first is sex during menstruation. Okay. Because although we might think of hygienic reasons why that might be the case, why it would be uh, considered sexual sin is a little bit mystifying. The second one, of course, is child sacrifice, because that doesn't seem to be sexual at all. Okay, um, But both of them directly connect with procreation, don't they? Both of them involve the connection between a sexual relationship and the byproduct of that relationship in children. Okay? Um, another thing we need to recognize is much of the concerns in Leviticus have to do not with God's moral law, but what we sometimes call God's ritual law. In other words, it's not the things that make you sinful, it's the things that make you unclean. Now, do we understand tonight that those are categorically different things? That ritually unclean and unrepentant are not the same thing. You can be ritually unclean because you bumped into a corpse. That's not a sin. But it does leave you in a state of ritual uncleanness that requires a process so that you can be present around holy things, specifically the tabernacle and God himself. Okay, And so menstruation involves this ritual code. It has to do with uncleanness. That's not a sin issue. Sex during menstruation is not a sin issue. It has to do with that status of ritual cleanness, which is innately and purposefully uh, symbolic. Okay? The whole ritual code is not about hygiene, even though we're using the language of clean and unclean. It's about understanding who God is and maintaining distinct boundaries between who God is and who he is not. So you will see there is death and blood that all is unclean making because God is a God of life. You will see, for example, in the food code, the kosher laws, that the animals that don't fit in the clear categories of creation like the platypus, for example, is an unclean animal because he doesn't fit the order of God's design. It doesn't mean that God didn't make him. It's symbolic. God is a God of order. And so anything that seems out of order is unclean making. God is a God of life. Therefore, anything revolving around death uh, is unclean making. It is a liturgical tool to make a distinction between the God of the Old Testament and the ancient Near East religious context. Okay, okay so long explanation, but actually these two are both dealing with the realm of sexuality. Okay, 
Now, some argue that this phrase here in uh, 1822, you shall not lie with a male, as with a woman, it's abomination, uh, is actually speaking here of cultic religious worship, and thus not referring to non-idolatrous homosexual sex. Okay? Um, although the header and the footer of this list does mention the religious practices of other nations, or specifically the ethical practices of other nations, do not be like the Egyptians. Uh, most of the items on the list are clearly not part of religious practices. What makes adultery wrong is not that it somehow worships another god, but because it is a sexual sin. Um, in fact, when we look through the list, uh, outside of child sacrifice which doesn't need to be offered to another god to be wrong, right? It's just the murder of children that's being condemned here, even for religious reasons. Um, in actuality, this whole list focuses on behavior, and there's not a hint of any sort of specification. It doesn't say you shall not lie with a male as with a woman in religious practice. It does not say at the temple of pagan gods. It speaks in relatively generic terms, okay? Now, some go, well, yes, but abomination is used here. In fact, it's worth pointing out right now that although if you read this list closely, all these things are referred to in the closing verse there in uh, verse 24 as these abominations, plural, only this one command here in verse 22 is referred to as an abomination in the singular, it has been suggested that the word abomination is clearly religious. In other words, any place we find it, it evokes the idea of idolatry. Okay. Kostenberger points out that toabah, which is this word, abomination, can indeed refer to idolatrous acts. So, for example, here in 2 Kings. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Sounds similar to what we were reading in Leviticus. Okay? But what I want you to notice here is that phrase despicable. That's toabah, the same word used for abomination back in Leviticus. Okay? However, two things. Um, uh, first, I want you to notice that the way that toabah is used here is, is as an adjective, right? This is abominable, if we want to be grammatically correct, not an abomination, okay? Um, we can see another example of how this plays out before I get to part two um, in Jeremiah. But first, I'll doubly replay their iniquity and their sin because they polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols, abominable idols, Okay. Again, we see that connection, and this one's clearer, isn't it? Uh, because it goes on and it says, and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. Boom. Toabah as a noun. And do we see any sort of sexuality tied into this at all? None. Okay. That is absolutely true. It does sometimes in the Old Testament refer to idolatrous practices alone, but it doesn't always. Okay. Here in Genesis... Speaking of the Egyptians, um, they served Joseph by himself, and then Joseph's brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Okay? And so notice what's happening here. The Egyptians know Joseph's not Egyptian. 
Joseph is presenting himself as an Egyptian, and so it actually ends up in three groups of people eating by themselves. Joseph's brothers, Joseph all alone, because he can't eat with either of them, and the Egyptians proper, okay? But here it's labeled as toabah, as an abomination, but this isn't about religious practice, okay? It isn't about idolatry, in fact, okay? Uh, here's another example. This one is in Proverbs. Now, this one's actually really significant, because notice here, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination, the problem here is not idolatry proper, but disobedience. And it's seen here as also being an abomination. Okay. But as I mentioned earlier, here in Leviticus, in the context, uh, although abominations is used in the plural of the whole list, uh, and only singular in the verse we're looking at, the fact that it refers in plural to the whole list, again, removes it from all being idolatrous. Adultery is abominable, despite the fact that it has nothing to do with the worship of other gods. Bestiality is abominable, whether it involves the worship of another god or not. Okay? Um, in the same way, and even more so, the word here is used in the singular in a very specific way of the act that's being talked about in Leviticus. Now, on top of that, going back here to Leviticus 18.22... Uh, so there's the plural that I mentioned at the end of the chapter, just so you know. You will keep my statutes, my rules, and do none of these abominations. What abominations? The ones that make up the content of the list in chapter 18. Okay. Um, but when we look here again at Leviticus 18, 22, the second thing I want you to notice here is that this verse is a direct allusion to Genesis 2. Okay. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. Not a man. Why does it evoke here not the concept of man and woman, but the biological reality of male and female? Because it's drawing significance from creation as we've looked at it in Genesis 2. Here, as with a woman, woman is Isha, taken from Genesis 2.23. That is Adam's title he gives to Eve. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. And so this word, uh, this phrase actually combines these two concepts, one from Genesis 1, male and female created in the image of God, and one from Genesis 2, Adam calls his wife Isha because she was taken out of man, Ish. Okay. And then most importantly, when we look at this text, it provides no restriction or explanation on the relationship. It seems to be intentionally broad. It is not the context of the act that makes it sinful, but the act itself. Okay. Also, it's worth pointing out here that the way that this is phrased is clearly consensual. Okay. This language of lying with a man or lying with a woman does not imply any form of overpowering strength or abuse. In the Hebrew, there are words for that. They're not used here doesn't use the term for rape. Now, when we jump forward to chapter 20, we find, again, the same thing. But here's the difference between the list in chapter 18 and the list in chapter 20. Chapter 18 presents the sins and says, don't be like the Egyptians. Chapter 20 speaks of their punishment for the community. In fact, they're arranged differently. Instead of finding them in the same order, in chapter 20, we arrange them in terms of escalating punishment. 
degree of consequence. Okay, and so here in 2013, it says, if a man lies with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, they shall surely be put to death, their blood is upon them. Okay. So the order here is different because the passage focuses on penalty and is organized from the most severe penalty, death, like we see here, to the least severe, which is to be cut off from the people, estranged, or maybe infertility. Okay. For the most part, the wording we find here is the same we saw in chapter 18. As with a woman, here the noun in the singular for abomination is used, but here, of course, we see the penalty of death is applied. Now, uh, when we look at the Old Testament law, we need to recognize that it is not just moral and ritual, I've mentioned those two things, but it is also civil, right? It is a law given to a particular people for the execution of a particular system of uh, community under the, uh, under the order of a particular government, okay? This Old Testament covenant was not given to people generically or followers of God, but to the nation of Israel. Okay. We always need to keep that in mind when we look at passages like this, which involve, uh, involve civil code and consequence. But I do want to draw your attention to the fact here that the penalty of death is applied to both parties. Again, clearly implying that this uh, sexual act is consensual and not forced. Okay. Now that we've looked at both, we can also see the seriousness of the prohibition. Although the whole list in both places refers to all sorts of things that collectively are abominations, only this sin in both places is called an abomination in the singular. Okay. Now, that is not enough for us to know what we mean when we say abomination. Right? This is a word that has taken on a lot of energy in English, and outside of the abominable snowman, really has only one meaning in our minds, which is a a unnatural horror, okay? We have not seen yet if this word carries any of that freight. That comes more from English usage than it does from the word toabah. Nonetheless, we see that it does mean something. And as I mentioned, um, here, this particular sexual sin receives the highest penalty under Levitical law, death, okay? But more than this, Abomination in the singular is only used in Leviticus in these two places. Okay. There are other abominable things. Eating unclean animals is abominable in the book of Leviticus. That's why sometimes you'll hear gay activists go, doesn't your Bible also say you can't eat shellfish? Doesn't it also say that's an abomination? Well, it says it's abominable. But it is only this act... Uh, that in Leviticus is used in the singular, in the noun uh, of this, uh, this word abomination. In fact, in the Pentateuch, the term is used adjectivally of unclean food, but never as a noun. Okay. Now, that doesn't really give us a whole lot, but what it does give us is a starting place, because what I want to show you tonight about these six passages, um, I both want to respond to a lot of the dismantling that's happened as people have tried to say that this can't possibly mean what it seems to mean, but I also want to show you that the most important point is what I'll call tonight the intertextuality of these passages. 
When we read the Bible, we have a tremendous advantage we don't always employ, which is that many of the Bible writers are also Bible readers, and they're fluent in the scriptures. And so when they talk, they borrow the language of, or they reference or quote other books of the Bible, or they allude to. Their biblical theology is, guess what, shaped by the Bible that they had in their hands. And so when you read the prophets, you find them very competent in the book of Deuteronomy, the covenant that they are calling Israel back to. Okay? As we've talked about, Jesus' mouth is full of the Old Testament, so are the apostles. If you look at the book of Revelation and John says, and I saw, behold, the new heavens and the new earth, where does he get that title from? The book of Isaiah. It's Isaiah's term, and he just recognizes it when he sees it. The Bible is not just written by our authors, but was also read by our authors, and that shapes how they write. And so what I want to show you is starting from this place where we've already seen one connection between Genesis 2 and Leviticus, we're going to see that connection flows through the whole thing. We don't have six de uh, uh, desperate or uh, distinct separate passages that may or may not address homosexuality, we have a consistent witness all playing on the same theme. Okay. So, I know there's some things in Leviticus we have to stick a pin in, and that's fine. Let's look at Genesis 19. Okay. Let, remind, let me remind you of what's going on in the context here. Abraham's nephew, Lot, has settled in the city of Sodom. God has come. He's dined with Abraham and Sarah. He's explained to him that in a year's time, Isaac, the promised one, is actually going to come. And then he's divulged the other business that he has in the area, which is to see if the injustice and wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah is as bad as he's heard, in which case there's going to be consequences. And Abraham starts this really interesting discussion where he says, Okay, but will you destroy the whole city if, if there's only 50 righteous people in it? Will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And he says, no. If there is even 50 righteous people, I'll spare the whole city. What about 40? How about 35? What about 20? Okay, I, I'm just dust. You're God. I'm dust. But what if you only find 10? Even if there are 10 righteous men in Sodom and Gomorrah, I'll give the whole city a free pass. Okay. And so God... Uh, sends these angels into Sodom. Lot sees these strangers. Don't think strangers with wings, just strangers. He doesn't know any better. He sees them in the courtyard. He's apparently nervous for them and says, no, you can't sleep here. You've got to come to my house, okay? And that's what brings us to here. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Now, we'll come back to that, but I want you to notice this is everyone, right? Does it want us to see everyone here? Listen again to all the modifiers, okay? The men of the city, I'm talking about the men of Sodom, the old ones all the way down to the young ones, all the people to the very last man, okay? That's significant. We need that for context, okay? Surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. 
Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And he said, this, and they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he's become the judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Now, remember, the next morning, the angels say, all right, it's time for us to go. Uh, Lot can't convince his sons-in-law to come with him, so he grabs his daughters and his wife, and they head out. And the angels explain that they need to hurry up because judgment can't come on the city until Lot and his family are safely out of town, right? And so God keeps his promise not to destroy the righteous with the wicked, but he does not find ten righteous. In fact, as we see, because wife's lot turns back and is turned to a pillar of salt, and then both of Lot's daughters impregnate themselves after getting their father drunk, they kind of find a half-righteous man. That's all they find. Not ten righteous man, not a righteous family. They find almost righteous Lot. Okay. In fact, I'll just say it in advance. One of the hardest things in this story is the fact that Lot's solution to this citywide militaristic rape is the offering up of his daughters. Don't ever neglect the poetic irony of what happens next, that he seeks to take advantage of his daughters to get himself out of a difficult situation, and they end up taking advantage of him. Okay. Um, He does not come come out of here smelling like a rose, Okay, now, side note, remember that a similar thing happens again in the book of Judges, but this time it happens within the nation of Israel in the Benjamite town of Gibeah. The story is relatively the same. Again, there is a call for the man to come out, and instead of daughters, a concubine is offered. She's raped till dawn and killed, and the guy cuts her into pieces and calls all of Israel to war. It is the low point, by the way, of the book of Judges. But there's a clear parallel, isn't there? What was the proverbial wicked is now existing in the people of Israel. Okay, there's a parallel between these two stories. Okay? Now, some argue, this is getting rarer and rarer, but some argue that this passage is not sexual at all, that the no here in verse 5, send the men out to us that we might know them, uh, is actually just them being frustrated that there are dangerous strangers in their midst who they have not yet got become acquainted with. Okay, um, and these men are angry because they see these strangers as a threat being harbored by Lot. But of course, that's untenable, not because it doesn't seem to make sense of the story, but also because in verse eight, where daughters Lot, uh, uh, where Lot's daughters are labeled, uh, specifically, he says, "Take these women who what who have not known a man." It doesn't mean they've never met anybody. Of course not. Right? This is one of the ways that we come to determine what the Bible means. We look for meaning of words in the immediate context. And the immediate context leads us to believe that this is an idiom for a sexual relationship. Okay? However, we also need to be clear here that what is going on is clearly gang rape. Okay? In fact, it is hard to argue that this act is um, rooted in sexual desire at all. Right? The idea here is uh, intentionally militaristic. All the men of the city 
Uh, it is gang rape. It's, and that would be wicked in and of itself, no matter the sexual orientation. Okay? If God had sent women instead of men, and the men of Lot had cried out, send us these women that we might know them, the problem would have been the same. Okay? Because it is, uh, because it is rape. Now, some argue that because of this, the passage is irrelevant to the conversation and says nothing about consensual, committed, homosexual relationships. And let me affirm tonight that this is not the place where we should start this conversation. Okay. Because it clearly is a whole lot more than that. And as we'll see, it's a whole lot more than just gang rape that is the problem with Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. Often... Uh, these people point to Ezekiel's commentary on why Sodom was destroyed to show that it has nothing to do with homosexual sex. Again, that is the right instinct. How do we know what happens here and how God feels about it? Does the Bible anywhere else address this and explain more? And the answer is yes. Actually, the Bible talks about Sodom and Gomorrah quite a lot throughout the prophets. But the clearest one and the one that people like to turn to, and as we'll see, it's also the most significant for our understanding, is in Ezekiel chapter 16. Okay. Verse 8 and Ezekiel 16. Okay. Context. Okay, first off, Ezekiel 16 is not actually about Sodom and Gomorrah. It's about Israel and Judah the northern tribes and the southern tribes. In fact, God is condemning Israel and Judah for being worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. It is also the most sexually explicit passage in all of the scriptures. Okay? If you sit down and read it aloud in front of your children, you will want to escape from that conversation. It is intense. Okay? Um, but here, there is a reference to Ezekiel, and notice it's helpful to us because we want to know what was the sin of Sodom? Ezekiel tells us, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Okay. Now notice, Ezekiel 16.4.9 doesn't talk about sexual sins at all. In fact, it makes us a little bit nervous when we see that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed for these things because they sound tremendously familiar, don't they? They sound outright American. Again, pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, and despite that, did not aid the poor and needy. In other words, the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer, right? Okay. Um, so again, let's be clear here. Clearly, it was more than just one event at Lot's front door that led to the destruction of Sodom. We may say that that was rightly the straw that broke the camel's back or the evidence that God was, was looking for. He has eyewitness testimony of what it's like. Okay? Um, but it's not the sin of Sodom, even if it was the final sin of Sodom. Okay? But it doesn't seem to make the list, so should we scrub it entirely? Okay. In fact, uh, just a side note, Remember, in Genesis 18, God tells Abraham the outcry against Sodom is very great. What does that imply? The complaint drawer is getting full, right? It's a long-standing problem of Sodom's treatment of people that is leading to this impending destruction. However, 
These same critics who use this passage rarely recognize the significance of the directly following verse. I don't want Genesis, I want Ezekiel here. So we read 649, or 1649, but notice I've added one more thing here. Behold, this was your guilt of sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. We mentioned here a final sin, so does Ezekiel. Not only that, but he says here that it was an abomination. Okay. The word here for abomination is in the singular, just like the two Levitical passages on homosexual sex. Now here's something that's easy to forget. Who is the author of Ezekiel? Now it's an easy question, right? It's Ezekiel, but who was Ezekiel? He is a Levitical priest. He is trained in the book we call Leviticus. He is acquainted with it. And so it is interesting here that he uses the language in this way. In fact, throughout chapter 16, he does use this word toabah a lot. But in every place, just like we saw in Leviticus, only in this verse do we find the singular noun. There are abominable practices all throughout Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel's condemnation of Judah and Israel, but only here he refers to the abomination and singular event as an abomination consistent with Leviticus. Okay. According to Ezekiel here, homosexuality is not the sole reason that Sodom was destroyed. It may not even be the important, most important reason, but it was the last reason. Now, let me remind you again, we haven't asked the question, uh, well, let's make clear, I should say, yes, but, but there it's gang rape. But here what he focuses on is not the rape, not the holistic city giving over to it, but the abomination. Okay? And as we saw in Leviticus, the reference there is, I'm sure including all those other things, but specifically including a man who lies with a male as with a woman. Okay? That seems to be what Ezekiel is referring to. Now that being said, we also need to see Sodom in the context of God's great mercy and patience. Okay? A lot of times we read Sodom and Gomorrah and what we read when we read it is an act of judgment and rightly so. But we need to put that in its context. Uh, Sam Andriatis here. Note that God went to great lengths to preserve Sodom. Abraham went in God's power to rescue the people of Sodom when they were earlier carried off. Remember that? Just a few chapters earlier, uh, Abraham has to go and rescue his nephew Lot because he's living with Sodom. And Sodom stands up against a couple of kings, and the other kings win and carry them all off, and Abraham goes and he delivers all of them. Okay. And he intercedes with God for them to be spared, right? We read that as well. Okay. A request God seems eminently agreeable to if evidence can be found that things are not so bad, that there remains some righteous preservation of his image in the city. Okay. If this was just a aspect of Sodom and not the defining holistic young to old aspect of Sodom, then things would have been different. God longs to lead us out of our sexual disintegration just as he led out Lot and his daughters. And remember, they get out of Sodom, but Sodom hasn't really gotten out of them. 
it's it's gross where things are. Okay, now we're going to come back to this passage because it's important. But I also want to point out to you that Ezekiel's not the only biblical author who gives us perspective on Sodom and Gomorrah that seems to refer to sexual sin specifically. In the New Testament, we have a couple of sister letters. We call them sister letters because they're so clearly closely related. The most easy and obvious pair is Ephesians and Colossians. If you read them closely, you will see they were written by Paul. Ephesians and, or Ephesus and Colossae are neighboring towns. They're carried by the same letter writer. They follow the same structure. They involve a lot of the same content. So we've referred to them as sister letters. They're written for the same reason, to similar people, only slightly adjusted for the differences that they have, okay? Another set of sister letters is 2 Peter and Jude, okay? In fact, if you read 2 Peter and Jude back to back, they are clearly sister letters because they're so weird. They're the only ones that evoke some of the same things that nowhere else in the New Testament talks about. It's as if Peter and Jude, both being pastors in Jerusalem, got talking about the churches out and about, and after that conversation said, we should write our constituencies, and wrote their own version of the same concern. Okay. But both of them address Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. Now, Second Peter just refers to the sensual conduct of Sodom. Okay. That's all it says. But Jude 7 is worth taking a closer look at. Here it is in Second Peter. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. That's all that's said. But Jude 7 requires a closer look. Here in Jude, again, Jude's a one-chapter book, so not Jude chapter 1, verse 7, just Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Do you see the similarities between that and what we read in 2 Peter? Both of them talk about it being an example of judgment to come. Okay? But it does it in different language here. Okay? Now notice here Jude tells us very clearly that the problem was one of sexual immorality. It's not like Ezekiel where we have any question that sexual sin was part of the list. But he also says here that they pursued literally, when it says unnatural desire there, literally in the Greek, it's strange flesh. Okay. Now some argue that the sin here, what makes the flesh so strange, is that Sodom and Gomorrah try and have sex with angels. Okay. In fact, they point out that in the context here, the verse before refers to the sons of God in the days of Noah having sex with the daughters of men. So strange flesh in the days of Noah, strange flesh in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, even Lot at that moment, at least until the miraculous blinding, does not know those people, his visitors, are angelic. They're just strangers. And that's how Sodom and Gomorrah treat them. But also notice here in verse 7 that Jude does begin with just as, or in other translations, Likewise, okay. in other words, there is a connection between what came right before this in Jude 6 and what we read in Jude 7. Okay. There is something about the problem in the days of Noah that led to the flood and the problem in the days of Sodom that led to the fire and brimstone. 
just as, in the same way. And here it does say that they pursued unnatural desire. They went after strange flesh. But notice here, he does not just condemn Sodom and Gomorrah for this, but the surrounding cities. Now, we read Genesis very closely, didn't we? All of Sodom was present, every man to the very last of them. But what about the surrounding cities? They're not mentioned. When Jude mentions that, he broadens out the issue from a single act to a broader pattern. Okay, So either the other cities also at some time tried to have sex with angels, or what unnatural desire has in common between Noah and here is the incongruence of God's design. Okay, Strange flesh against the design, unnatural. Okay, So, so much for the Old Testament. Now, again, let me just pull that thread a little bit further. We saw that the passages in Leviticus touch with the wording of Genesis 2. We also saw that although Sodom and Gomorrah does not do the same, when it's interpreted by Ezekiel, he ties it to Leviticus. Okay. Now let's move to the New Testament, and let's talk about Romans 1. Now, if we're going to talk about where to begin on what the Bible says about this issue, this is the only place to turn. Okay. This is the passage that matters. This is the one where there is no extenuating circumstances or unclarity or that was the Old Testament or it's just a word on the list. How do we know what it means? All of those other things are real and important questions. Romans 1 is a lot harder to excuse or explain away. Okay. Again, let's talk about the context. Paul in this passage is trying to show how the world at large has suppressed the truth of God and stands condemned for their unrighteousness, right? That's what he says. He says the invisible attributes of God is clearly seen, but humankind, collectively, all of us, has responded by resisting that truth and believing a lie. Instead of worshiping the creature or the creator, we've turned and made things to worship in our own image and in the image of other created things. Right? And then it goes on to talk about how that leads, uh, leads to problems. But um, but here in Romans, this is the full passage. Okay. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves due penalty for their error. Okay. Now, the progression that leads to this is important. Okay. Earlier in verse 20, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness okay, of who God is and what they owe them. Second, they exchange the worship of God for worship of idols. They exchange the truth for a lie. And third here, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Okay? Gave them over to the lust of their heart. Gave them over to a debased mind. Three times in Romans, starting here and moving on, it talks about God giving them over. But I don't think you should see that as progressive. It's a re-describing of the same event. Okay? And so again, the truth is known. The truth is resistant, it's replaced with a lie, and God lets them go. Okay? God gave them over. Okay? Sometimes theologians refer to this passage as reflecting God's passive wrath. 
In other words, sin is its own consequence. Now, that's not the only type of wrath we should talk about, okay? But God gives them over. He lets them go. They want what they want, and it's going to shape them. It's going to impact them. If you worship idols, it will, you become like what you worship, but he gives them over. He lets them go. Okay. Now, I'm trying to decide how long it'll take me to get through Romans and when we should take our break. We're going to be in here for a long time, so let's pause right there and just, just sit uh, and take 10 minutes uh, for a break. And we'll save all our questions for the end tonight because we should get done early. See Paul engaging with creation. Now, earlier this evening, I was talking about how Leviticus connects with Genesis 1 and 2, but let me remind you, that's not just because Genesis 1 and 2 are, you know, the first chapters and therefore important. It's because they're the creation chapters. They're the chapters before sin. Creation, as we've talked about in this class, demonstrates God's design. And so notice here how much Paul has Genesis 1 and 2 in mind. Back here, uh, in the opening, for wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can no be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Okay, how? His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived where? Ever since the creation of the world in the things that they have made, so they are without excuse. Okay. Uh, in fact, just a few later, a few verses later, it says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking and foolish in their hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory for the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Those categories, birds, animals, and creeping things are creation categories. Creeping things is the one that makes it the clearest, okay? If you go back to what God makes, God makes the birds and the land animals and the creeping things that crawl upon the earth. That's the language of Genesis here. And then to sum it up here, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and amen. Not only do we see creation language, but here in our passage, notice it refers to the women exchanging natural relation for those that are contrary to nature. Okay. Uh, this phrase here, contrary to nature, paraphysin, gives some of the moral logic for Paul's condemnation of what he's talking about. It is against, contrary to nature. Now, there are some who argue that paraphysin here speaks only of custom and culture. So it, it, again, they would say that this should be against custom. And so what he's criticizing here is something that is uncustomary, not something that is unnatural. And it is worth remembering that if you study Greek philosophy and the classics, that physin, the, the world of the physical realm, is broader than just rocks and plants and trees. It also includes natural order. 
So there is a relationship in the ancient world between what is customary and what is natural. Okay? However, that doesn't seem to fit the use of this phrase in Romans, which is used quite a lot. Remember I told you earlier that when we study a word or a phrase we don't understand, okay, or if we want to know exactly what it means, one of our tools is to look at where it's used elsewhere. But not every use of a word determines its meaning in the same way. It's not a democratic opinion, okay? We don't go most of the time it uses, means this, so here it means. Instead we go, how does Paul use it in the immediate context? How does Paul use it in Romans? How does Paul as an author use it? And then how do other authors use it, okay? And we don't weigh those all the same way. The closer to the immediate context, the more likely we are that the same words are being used in the same way. So notice this just a chapter later in chapter 2. Jumping, jumping, here we go. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Okay? And so although they don't have the law, there's something in their nature that does the law. Now, could you say here that what he actually means is some Gentile customs overlap with righteous behavior? Maybe. But notice what he says just a little bit later. Then he who is physically uncircumcised, that's the word physin, by the way, physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Okay, uh, There it is physin, and here it's speaking of the physical act of circumcision. But the clincher for me, is in Romans chapter 11. For if God did not spare the fizzin branches, neither would he spare you. Okay. The metaphor that Paul is using here is of Israel being a tree and we as Christians being contrary to nature, as we'll see, grafted into it. Okay. And so he's talking here about an arborist metaphor. He's talking about what naturally works and a tree isn't naturally born with branches from other trees. Okay. In fact, notice what it says here. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted paraphysin, same phrase that we saw in Romans 1, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, the ones that are branches by physin, okay, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Okay? So when Paul is using paraphysin throughout Romans when he uses physin, he's not talking about custom. He's talking about nature. In, in the context of Romans 1, the nature that he's talking about is nature by design. It's creation. Okay, but it's more than this. It's not just about how Paul uses the language in Romans. It's about paraphysin being technical language when we talk about sexual sin. Okay. When I use the phrase technical language, what I'm trying to, trying to suggest is sometimes we use words in a generic sense, and sometimes we need, mean them in a very specific sense. So if we're walking down the street and I say, I like the White House, okay, that's the general sense. But there's also the technical term, the White House. Okay. Paraphysin can be used in a general sense, but it's also often used in a technical sense, in the same way about the same specific thing. Uh, here, this is from Preston Sprinkle, 
The phrase paraphysin has a long history going as far back as Plato, who first used it in reference to same-sex intercourse. Musonius Rufus was a Roman philosopher who lived around the same time as Paul. Rufus was more conservative than a King James Version-only preacher living in the Bible Belt. What's important is that Rufus goes on to say, but of all sexual relations, those involving adultery are most unlawful, and no more tolerable are those of men with men, because it's a monstrous thing and paraphysm. Okay. Notice that Rufus considers all forms of non-procreative sex to be immoral but only sex between men is considered paraphysm. That's the pattern we see throughout the ancient uses of paraphysm. As far as I can tell, Sprinkle says, the phrase paraphysm is never used to speak of immoral forms of heterosexual sex. Okay. In other words, much like our language conveys today, the Greek phrase contrary to nature or unnatural speaks of against the evident and obvious design. But not only do we see paraphysm against the grain of creation of male and female, therefore a man shall leave the father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh, but he also uses in Romans 1 the Septuagint words, okay, Septuagint would be the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the one that all of our New Testament authors are familiar with and the one that they quote from, okay. He uses the Greek words for male and female in Romans 1.27, okay? And so just as we saw in Leviticus, here, notice it's, their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to na nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women. Uh, but here's the thing. The words there are not the usual words for women and men. This word is not the Greek word gyna, where we get gynecologist. It's the technical word for female, for the females exchanged their relationships for what is contrary to nature. And the males uh, here committing shameless act with other males. Now why does he use that language instead of the men and women that populates his other letters? Because he's thinking in the terms of Genesis 1 and 2. Not only in Romans here do we see the influence of Genesis 1 and 2, but also the influence of Leviticus. Notice here... Um, Men committing shameless acts. Do you see that word shameless? Okay. This is the Greek word askimosine. Okay. It is used 24 times in Leviticus, and I can bet you I can I bet you you can guess what word it translates. Toaba. Abominable. Not only that, but Donald Wold says that this word itself, eschemocene, apart from the Septuagint, apart from its usage in the Old Testament, it, it even in its own self implies creation. Look at what he says here. These terms and expressions indicate that in the mind of Paul certain patterns exist for humanity. A clue to this pattern is found in his use of the term eschemocenin to describe homosexual act. A related term, schema, is used in the New Testament by Paul only at Philippians 2, 7 to describe the earthly form, appearance, shape, or essence of the incarnate Christ, okay? In other words, what makes it a scheme against the scheme, against the schematic, okay? That's the idea here, that it goes against the pattern or the plan. 
Now also, back here in, in Romans, uh, look at the end here. So what happens is he uses this one illustration of this particular type of sin, and then he goes on, but I'm not just talking about this, and he gives a laundry list of other sins, uh, which is, uh, includes things like envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Okay, And so the God giving over is a lot broader than the one he uses as exhibit A. Okay? But at the end of this, notice what he says. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Okay? Now, it seems here, in using this phrase, deserves to die or worthy of death, Paul must be referring to the Levitical punishment we saw in chapter 20. What else does he mean here by knowing these things are worthy of death? Okay? It seems he has Leviticus in mind. And as we'll see, Paul seems to consult Leviticus in other places as well. Okay, for example, we'll come back to 1 Corinthians 6, but I want you to notice here in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul criticizes the Corinthian church for accepting a relationship between a man and his stepmother. And this is what he says. It's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Now, what's significant for us about this, that last phrase, a man has his father's wife? That is the phrase of relationship in the language of Leviticus 18. Okay. And so Paul tends to see Leviticus 18 as being significant for a Christian sexual ethic. He's familiar with it, and he evokes the language of it. Okay. Now, another thing we have to deal with here, if we're going to understand what Paul talks about in Romans when he says that, that uh, women, contrary to nature, are having relationships not with men but women, and likewise men with men, we have to go, okay, what about in the Roman world that Paul is writing about? What is he talking about in that day? Some argue that Paul's only same-sex sexual relationship that he would have been familiar with, that the only forms that were visible in public in the ancient world were exploitative inherently. They were built into power structures. Specifically, they evoke the concept of pederastry. Okay. Pederastry, it was the ancient practice in the Greek and Roman world of mentors taking sexual favors as a form of payment to, from their mentees. Okay? It was a broadly practiced thing. In fact, Plato's symposium, like Plato who wrote The Republic, that Plato is a defense that the love between a teacher and his student is the highest of all loves, above marriage, above anything else. And he's not talking there about affections. He's talking about the sexual relationship. Now, rightly, we would recognize we have a hard time finding comparison to that in our modern world. If that is what Paul is primarily talking about, that is not what we're talking about in concepts like gay marriage. It's not talking about consensual, committed, faithful relationships of love. Um, but this idea that Paul is only familiar with pederastry, or sometimes they add the idea that homosexual orientation, the idea that people may have a proclivity to the same sex, an internal desire to the same sex, they also suggest that that's a modern understanding and not an ancient concept. Okay? 
This is the primary defense I hear from people, Christian and non, talking about this issue, is that homosexual orientation is a modern understanding that the ancient world just didn't have, and it is false. Okay. I want to quote pretty extensively here. Preston Sprinkle, uh, his book, as I've mentioned to you, uh, or we'll deal with Loder here first, but you'll see Sprinkle's name pop up over and over again. His book, People to be Loved, is the best book dealing with the topic. His attitude is right, his challenge of where the church has gotten this wrong is right, and his research is up to snuff. Um, and so you'll see I quote him extensively. That's just because he has the most up-to-date and most deep scholarly understanding of these issues. But even William Loder here, Writing in the late 4th century BCE, Plato in his symposium, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, has the comic playwright Aristophanes tell a similar story to account for sexual drive, okay? Now, did you notice where this is found? This story that we're about to talk about is found in the symposium, a book about pederastry, but here is the story. According to Aristophanes, human beings once existed in three forms, male with two sets of male genitalia, female with two sets of female genitalia, and mixed with one of each. One day, the annoyed god Zeus, who in a fit of rage, cut them in half from top to bottom. The result of their being cut in half is that ever since the halves have sought their other half, males seeking females, males seeking males, and females seeking females. Now, is that scientific understanding of sexual orientation? No, but neither is ours. Okay. What they're doing is describing a pervasive and persistent reality of some people in the terms of mythology, but clearly the implication here is that certain people have a specific proclivity and are looking for a partner either in a heterosexual relationship or in a homosexual one. Uh, sprinkle here, in the 4th century BC, four centuries before Christ, right? Aristotle said that some homoerotic desires come from habit, but others spring from nature. Okay, again, is Aristotle some unknown little influence in the ancient Greek world? No, he's the big name beside Plato, okay? In other words, some people are born with same-sex desires. Parmenides, an early 5th century BC philosopher, believed that men who desire to be penetrated were, quote, generated in the act of conception. It was something about the birth in particular that led to that behavior. It's not a choice. It's something that, that they find within themselves from birth. Likewise, a Greek physician from Ephesus named Seranus, who lived around the same time as Paul, believed that homoerotic desires are shaped more by nature rather than nurture. In other words, people didn't come to have homoerotic desires because of the way they were raised. Now, what about this concept of pederasty? We've seen here consistent testimony from the ancient world of a concept that seems to parallel ours of same-sex attraction or sexual orientation. But what about pederasty? Okay. Pederasty, Sprinkle says, was the most common form of same-sex relations in the Greco-Roman world. But it wasn't the only kind. There is at least some evidence for consensual, peer, same-sex relations as well. That is, there were men and women who engaged in same-sex relations that were mutual, consensual, interdependent, loving, and committed. 
These were the minority, but they certainly existed. Now, if we stopped there, this is where this stuff usually stops, okay? We live in a day and age where most people's understanding of issues is because they read some supposed expert give their opinion. And so, again, people regularly tell me and are often told that these things just didn't exist in the ancient world. For Sprinkle to come along and say, yes, they did, wouldn't solve anything. And it's a place where we've got to stop settling and going, well, that's enough for me. Anytime I hear a news report that says experts say, I stop paying attention because I don't know what that means anymore. What experts? Experts in what? Even that would be helpful, right? But we don't hear that anymore because now it's just a trump card. It's an authoritarian play so that you believe what comes next. Okay? Now I've told you, I am not a tinfoil hat wearer conspiracy, conspiracy theorist. Authority matters, but I want to know what the authority is. And I want to see the evidence, and Sprinkle provides it. For instance, Agathon was a famous Greek poet known for his physical beauty. He was also known for dressing up like a woman and for having a lifelong consensual lover named Pasineus. To be sure, the relationship between Agathon and Pasineus began as pederastry. Pasineus fell in love with Agathon when Agathon was a teenager. However, while most pederastic relationships ended when the beloved youth grew a beard, that's the end of, a per, uh, of pederastry, Pasineus and Agathon remained committed well into adulthood. A Greek philosopher named Parmenides, we already encountered him once, when he was 65, was in a same-sex relationship with Xenon. Although Parmenides was much older, the relationship wasn't mere pederastry. Xenon, his lover, was 40 years old. Consensual and loving homosexual relationships can be seen during the Roman period as well. For instance, Xenophon's 2nd century AD novel, An Ephesian Tale, depicts a young man named Hippothos who falls in love with another man of the same age named Hyperionthes. Hippothos says, quote, Our first steps in lovemaking were kisses and caresses. While I shed floods of tears, we were both the same age and no one was suspicious. For a long time, we were together passionately in love, it finishes. Another novel by Achilles Tacitus was written around the same time, depicts male lovers who are roughly the same age. Both of these are novels and not histories, but, if not, but novels only make sense if they mirror the real world. Consensual same-sex love, even marriages, can be found among women around the time of Paul. Side note, one of the primary sources of information for Preston Sprinkle here is a book called Love Between Women. It's written by a lesbian scholar who researched lesbianism throughout history. Okay? Uh, she is kind of the expert in the field and has no advantage in supplying Christians with an understanding of how to read the Bible. Okay. But as she points out, a second century writer named Lambicos talks about the marriage between two women named Berenike and Mesopotamia. Lucan of Samosata also mentions the marriage of two wealthy women named Megalus and Demonassa, and Ptolemy of Alexandria, a famous second century scholar of many trades, refers to women as taking other women as, quote, lawful wives. Okay. Now, on top of that, on top of the broad reality that is more than pederastry in Greek philosophy and the Roman Empire as a whole, it's impossible here in Romans 1 that Paul has in mind pederastry because he starts not with men but with women. 
And pederastry is entirely unknown between women. Period. Kind of like I was listening today about the revolution of sex robots. But it's entirely unknown as a phenomenon for women. Okay. He specifically mentions women here, and there was no comparable practice in the ancient world to pederastry between women. Okay. Paul here in Romans 1 doesn't criticize the behavior because it's exploitative. Because it's a misuse of a class system, of a power structure, but because it goes against God's creation design. Okay. Now let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now we visited this passage a long time ago. Okay. Paul says to the church in Corinth, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay. In the context here, Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church for unchristian behavior. First, for taking one another to court. And second, for prostitution. Remember we spent all that time in chapter 7 talking about um, casual sex. Okay, that's the context here. When we read in the list, men who practice homosexuality, again, let me remind you that you can't just push the Bible forward, point to it and go, look, it's clear. The Bible says it. What are, what is the word here? What are the words here? It's actually two different words and they are separate terms. Okay. Um, The first one that comes in here that's untranslated is malikos, and the second one is arsenokoites. So actually, if you read this list, it's uh, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor malikos, nor arsenokoites, nor thieves, nor greedy. That's the way it reads. Okay. Now, malikos literally means soft. It's the word that Jesus uses when he's talking about royal garments. He says, when you went out to John the Baptist, what did you want to see? A man in soft garments? That's malikos. Okay? That's all the word means in its literal sense. It was used in the ancient world regularly and consistently to speak of men who would dress femininely to attract other men, often the passive partner in homosexual relations. Okay? Now again... Um, uh, again, that is a technical version of a general term, okay? And so you will find translations today that say soft men, okay? Um, Arsenokoites is a word that we do not find anywhere in Greek writings before 1 Corinthians. It appears that Paul makes it up on the spot. He coins it, okay? As Paul is wont to do. He does that quite a lot, okay? We don't find it in Greek documents before Paul's time, it's a compound word made up of two smaller words, male and bed. So again, if we wanted to be really literal here, it's man-bedders. Why did Paul make up a word? Because in the Septuagint translation of Leviticus, lies with a male is two words, arsenokoitin. He takes lies with a man, arsenokoitin, and he makes it the person who lies with a man, the man-bedder. And he puts the words together, okay? Uh, we do stuff like that all the time. Okay. Um, most likely, when Paul uses these two words together, he's using them in tandem to speak of both roles in homosexual anal sex. 
Hence, the ESVs, men who practice homosexuality, the passive recipient of the sex and the active partner. Okay? Now, that may bother you or not bother you, but it's important to recognize even in our culture, we make the same distinction, tops and bottoms. Okay? But here's the thing. The most important thing to recognize is that there are two words, not just one. Most scholars recognize that the presence of these two words respect, reflects widespread assumptions throughout the ancient world about male-male homosexual activity. Almost all the documents discussing male-same-sex eroticism assume a distinction between active older men, commonly referred to in Greek as aristai, and passive younger males, commonly referred to as eremonoi. In other words, the practice of pederastry. But notice what happens when Bronson suggests that. He shows that the ancient world has language for pederastry, and Paul doesn't use it. Right? He doesn't talk about the aristai and the erminoi. He talks about the malikos and the man-better. Okay? Um, the malikoi, the softies, are the younger passive erminoi, and the arsenikoitai, man-betters, are the older active aristai. Again, a problem that Bronson has here is that is still an observable category of homosexual sexual relationships in our world. Okay? In fact, the distinction between older men and younger men in partnership is a common way of thinking about some homosexual categories within the gay community today. Okay? But Paul doesn't use the accepted and clear terms even though he's speaking to who? A Roman audience. He doesn't use the recognized Roman words. Instead, he coins his own language. The last reference is also significant, but we don't really need to spend a lot of time with it um, because it's very similar to what we just saw in 1 Corinthians 6. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Okay. Um, now here in this passage, Paul is talking about the proper use of the law, not for self-righteousness, but for seeing our need for a savior. Again, here we find the word arsenikoites, which we've already talked about. Okay. Now, there are piles of arguments against understanding these passages in this way. And no doubt there will be more to come. Although I will say that I have been reading um, what we call pro-gay theology positions, open and affirming positions, pretty extensively. And they've been relatively present since the 70s they haven't actually modified or changed that much. Okay? Even though there's been significant responses to that, there hasn't been new arguments for the most part, but just a continuous stating of the same original arguments, many of which we've dealt with tonight. There are some arguments that have been abandoned because they were outright silly. Um, like, for example, that Ruth and Naomi were lesbian partners which means the poster child of your biblical relationship is a lesbian relationship until a man gets involved and that's better. I mean, it just doesn't work. It doesn't say anything. And their mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. It's just, uh, it's just suggestive at best, okay? Um, but the thing that makes these compelling is not just disarming all of the other ways of reading these things. It's again, seeing how interrelated they all seem to one another. 
that there seems to be not just a consistency in the witness of Scripture, but that the authors who write these passages are familiar with the other passages and evoke them as if they were about the same topic, despite the fact that they're in different settings, written to different places, and written over the span of almost 4,000 years of time. Okay? It is not just merely cultural and merely cultural and merely cultural. It is broadly, pervasively beyond cultural. Leviticus, as I said, uses the terminology of Genesis 1. Sodom and Gomorrah is referred to Ezekiel, a Levitical priest, with the language of Leviticus. It's also referred to in terms of sexual immorality, even with a reference to strange flesh by Peter and Jude. Romans 1 alludes both to the creation narrative and to Leviticus. 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy use a term that Paul coins directly from the verse in Leviticus that we looked at. I have come to the conclusion that that understanding is relatively inescapable because it is, again, so consistent and compound. But we also must recognize tonight that this is not all the Bible says to same-sex attracted people. And so when we talk as if the only thing the Bible wants to say to your gay neighbors, to your Christian friends who identify as gay and attend open and affirming churches, we completely mishandle the scriptures. We can see this even just in the context of the passages we looked at tonight. I don't have to do everything else we've done and talk about singleness and the eunuch, although we will. But if we just look at the context of these passages, let me just review. In Leviticus, homosexual behavior is one of many unacceptable sexual sins. It is not the sin. Okay. Included on that list is adultery. And remember what Jesus says about adultery. And if you've done it in your heart, you are guilty of it. And you find yourself condemned by Leviticus 18 as well. Now, I can't help but notice here, for those who would like to throw out Leviticus 18 and 20 as being irrelevant for our world, I would assume that you would also want to throw out what falls between them, Leviticus 19. But do you know what we get from Leviticus 19? You will love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus' primary explanation of what we owe one another. Okay. In Sodom and Gomorrah, According to Ezekiel, we see that God's people are condemned for worse sins, and so we cannot handle this sin like hypocrites. Sodom and Gomorrah are not the enemies of Ezekiel 16, God's own smug, self-righteous people who think that they're above God's judgment are the ones who are being spoken to there. Here again in Ezekiel 16, verse 48 right before verse 49, as I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Now does that mean that uh, in Israel that there was pervasive homosexual activity? No, we don't find any evidence of that at all. But using God's own measure, Jerusalem was worse. Okay. In Romans, not only is homosexuality not the only sin, quote, worthy of death, and we all stand condemned and in need of a savior. Okay. Um, Romans doesn't end again with these two exhibits that Paul seems to choose because they fit his theme of going against the grain of what's obvious, what's natural, what God's cre clear created order is. And so after this, he says, 
they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're filled with envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Even if we just stop there, you find yourself in that list, condemned under the wrath of God. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He says, though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Paul's whole point of Romans 1 is to get to the therefore of chapter 2. And what he wants to talk is about self-righteous condemnation of other people. Every time we stick our foot out to trip our LGBT neighbor, we put it directly in our, in our mouth. And they know it. They know it better than we know it. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Again, we don't just speak to a bunch of sexual sinners as sinners that aren't sexual sinners. As we've talked about, these are pervasive and unrelated. There is only one way that sex works biblically according to God's design. And there are plenty of ways that you express wrongly your sexuality in your day-to-day -day life. Okay. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do themselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? In 1 Corinthians 6, we see that homosexuality is not an unforgivable sin. Right? He gives a list of all of these sins, which again includes sins you find yourself in, again includes heterosexual sexual sins, but then he says this, and such were some of you. The idea that homosexuality or even homosexual orientation is a mark of God's curse and unredeemable, right here in the text that we say deals with homosexuality is addressed, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And again, remember here that that evokes a reality that is not just forgiveness, but one of a new identity. No longer who you were. Okay. More importantly, we need to recognize that the church hasn't provided a compelling enough script for those dealing with homosexuality. None of the passages we've reviewed tonight condemn same-sex attraction as being sinful inherently. But part of the fallen condition, a propensity or a bent towards sinful behavior, sure. Okay. But what have we done for people who experience said same-sex attraction? Mark Yarhouse, the sexual minority has experiences that set them apart from others at least how, that's how they recall those experiences from childhood. Then they find themselves attracted to the same sex at puberty, and these attractions can be both sexual and emotional. Of course, these experiences are run through a kind of filter. They have to be organized in a way that gives them meaning. Okay? They take their experience, they take their habits, and then they have to explain, what does this mean? We do this all the time as human beings. Frankly, the church has not offered a particularly compelling vision for identity in the light of the experience of sexual minorities. Given the nature of the gay script, the sexual minority attributes their same-sex attraction to a gay identity by adopting the script and making the self-defining attribution, I am gay. 
This is an initial attribution that makes meaning out of the attractions they experience, and it also helps address the need for identity, which is an important developmental stage of adolescence. Okay. He continues here. Um, so, so here's what he says. He says, when somebody comes to the conclusion that the same-sex attraction defines my identity in this way, I am gay, and then because of that shared experience with other people, I am part of the LGBT community, what they're searching for is understanding, a way to explain who they are and where they fit, right? Identity and community. He continues here, second, we need to understand that the gay identity script mirrors our broader cultural script about sexuality for teenagers today. This isn't just about homosexuality or same-sex attraction. Consider the script your straight teens are following. What are the messages they're hearing from their sexual identity and influence their sexual behavior? Our culture associates our impulses with our needs and prescribes following our impulses to meet those needs. Our culture also highlights our individual autonomy that we meet our needs independent of any outside sources of authority, including parents or religious values. The notion of self-control and self-denial fails to fit with our broader cultural script for sexual identity, so the challenges aren't just in addressing same-sex attraction. They're related to broader issues in our culture. Okay. So there is a natural flow to the river of meaning-making in our culture. What has the church done to present an alternative meaning? To a large degree, we've denied those experiences even exist. And sometimes it happens at the personal level. You're not same-sex attracted. You're, you're too young to know that. I'm, I'm sure you'll grow out of it, right? Just marry a woman and everything will be fine. Okay? All of these ways deny the experience and provide no understanding of the experience. The church needs to find a way to help those dealing with same-sex attraction make meaning out of their experience. First and foremost, and hear me clearly, church, the goal is never a change in orientation. And it's not because God isn't capable of that. It's because that's not how we define God's success in human life. Okay? God is capable, but he doesn't always do so. In fact, if you want to follow the downfall of Exodus International, this great umbrella ministry of Christian ministry to people dealing with same-sex attraction, this was their greatest misstep. They said the only thing that Jesus does about this is fixes it and gives you a heterosexual nature instead. Okay. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield here. When the Lord entered my world, I experienced that gospel-ignited, expulsive power of a new affection, to quote the title of Thomas Chalmers' famous sermon. That new affection was not heterosexuality, but Jesus, my Jesus, my friend and savior. I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. Okay. First and foremost, but also, Christopher Ewan, God says, be holy for I'm holy. I'd always thought that the opposite of homosexuality was heterosexuality, but actually the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. God never said, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. He said, be holy, for I am holy. Okay. This is from the Journal of Biblical Counseling. This is why I do not support the use of the term reparative therapy. Okay. Some of you are old enough to remember that this was a primary secular way of dealing with same-sex attraction in the 60s and 70s. Reparative therapy. He says, I find the term problematic given its exclusive use. Why don't we talk about reparative therapy for those who have a persistent bent towards anger, gossip, harshness, drug addiction, and heterosexual lust? 
The term implies if it's broken, it can be fixed. It views same-sex attraction as a disease to be cured rather than a desire to be battled. Do we have the same cure expectation for other life-dominating struggles in Christian life? Most of you who are heterosexually attracted knows that there are not easy solutions so that you no longer struggle with heterosexual sinful attraction. Okay. When we talk about victory in the Christian life, that's not peace from the battle. It's still fighting. And the longing that, uh, that we experience of Paul in Romans chapter 7, the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. And the things that I do uh, uh, not do, uh, anyways, you know the passage that I'm talking about. <laughs> Woe is me, who will deliver me from this body of death? And later in chapter 8, therefore we all eagerly groan and await with longing the redemption of our bodies, the fixing of what's wrong, the bending back of what's bent. Okay. Okay, and so we've got to provide a better script that says, hey, yeah, that makes sense. That experience fits because we live in a broken world and we all are fallen, not just you. Okay. A world that says, hey, yeah, and there's belonging for you in the church because the church is a place for fallen people awaiting the fixing of Jesus Christ and following him in a commitment to holiness in the meantime. Which means that the church needs to fit this issue in broader Christian discipleship context. Okay? Which is always about finding our identity in what we're becoming and not what we are. Remember we talked about resolving identity conflicts that can be uh, telic and organismic. Organismic says, these are my desires. Fulfilling those desires gives my life meaning. Telic says, this is where I'm headed. This is what I'm becoming. And that shapes the decisions I make now because of where I'm headed. And so telic congruence is achieved when we go, I want to be healthy, so I say no to certain foods. Okay. Um, and so that's part of it. Also the concept of stewardship, right? Stewardship entails the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. It's a common theme found throughout the New Testament that Christians are instructed to be responsible stewards of what they've been given. Okay. What is entrusted to the care of Christians' sexual minority is what's entrusted to all Christians. Among what's entrusted to Christians' care is resources such as money, but also family relationships, time, and of course sexuality and its expression. Everything that Christians have have been given to them for the express purpose of bringing honor and glory to God. This assertion will no doubt be completely foreign to those steeped in contemporary Western culture. Culture not only of individualism, but also personal ownership, and some would say entitlement. But the Christian stands in contrast to such ownership and entitlement in all areas. None of it's ours. None of it's something we own or even have a right to. And so stewardship makes a way to say God has dealt you a hand and he wants you to use it to glorify him just like the rest of us. And it also has to involve discipleship in the context of a church community. Too often we say go get yourself cleaned up or keep this to yourself. Don't ask, don't tell has often been the policy of the church as well. And so a pastor knows but he's the only one. And if it ever got out, you know when I first talked about these issues publicly at a conference, a Calvary Chapel, Chapel pastor and wrote me and said, I have dealt with same-sex attraction my entire life. Only my wife and one other pastor knows. I don't feel like I can tell anyone else. And he said, but you talking about it publicly gives me hope that soon I'll be able to share what Jesus has done in my life as well. 
Imagine your teenage son who's sitting in a room with a bunch of other boys confessing their own struggle with pornography, but he can't own up to the fact that his is slightly different. We have to find a way for there to be room for this. It has to be a place in the community. The challenge of singleness is far bigger than forgoing sexual intimacy. If we're going to call same-sex attracted people to celibacy and say that it's a good life, then we have to, as Janelle Paris notes, uh, without marriage, a person may well miss out on loving touch, life in a household, positive contact with children, companionship, financial stability, health insurance, and the certainty of care when he or she is sick or aging. I've heard these very concerns voiced by both men and women who are committed to the biblical sexual ethic, but because of persistent same-sex attraction, find their resolve tested. So have I, consistently and regularly. As they grow older and see their friends establish primary relationships with their spouses, they find themselves more alone and experiencing less vibrant community, even if they're proactive in cultivating relationships. Once their friends are married and having children, they often find that they have to be the initiators relationally, and that can be both discouraging and exhausting. This is why improving ministry to those who struggle with same-sex attraction is tied to cultivating and affirming singles in the church. If we don't do this, the affirmation of celibacy, whether for a season or lifelong, will seem hypocritical. Going without sex cannot mean going without intimacy. Again, Eve Tushnet's rebuke to the church is right. All we have offered the LGBT community as disciples of Jesus is a calling of no. Okay. Now lastly, I want to finish here. Primarily tonight, we have focused on what the Bible says about this issue. Over the last six weeks, we've filled in a lot of other things of all the other things it says to people dealing with these issues. That is the good news that we present. Not just creation, but creation, fall, redemption, and consummation has to be brought to bear on these issues. But I'm going to assume you can do the math for the most part. Okay. Um, but when we think about this issue, we need to recognize that we're addressing it on three different levels, and we have to know the difference. Again, the place where the church has been kicking itself and embarrassing itself and proving itself to not care and not love is because we can't distinguish the three fronts of this conversation. And so I find Yarhouse's pyramid of engagement here. Okay. At the top, the smallest place where you all deal with this is in terms of political advocates and ideology. Okay. The least conversations you should have, the ones that are the least, uh, uh, least present in your life, um, the ones that are to some degree only a unique calling for some of us as scholars or, uh, or debaters or such, are dealing with the ideological nature of, of the meaning of sex and these types of things. You will deal with political advocates who have a different opinion. You will have to vote in the ballot box and defend your view of society as a whole. That's true, but that's only one piece and it's the smallest piece. Second and more larger, how do we practically love our neighbors? Again, if the only way you engage with your gay neighbor is in the ballot box, you do not love them. We have to find a way to actually persistently and consistently and sometimes confusingly love people who Jesus loves. And then most importantly, and actually this is the one that's the most broad, if we can start talking about these things as if they're here and not out there is how do we support those we are in personal relationship with? Now, do you see how all three of those talk about the same issue but require very different conversations? The problem is 
what I generally find is uh, these engagements happening as if there's only one front. And so there's the church that is freaking out about God's definitions and what the Bible actually says and the goods for society, and that's all they ever talk about. And then there's the ones who are really emphasized on the care facet and caring for these things, but neglect the significance of those definitions and can sometimes present a, well, this is just what's right for us scenario instead of a broad defense of the truth. Okay? And then there's others who are like, church, the LGBT community, we need to be missionary-minded in. We need to remember that, that we don't have to just sit here and go, when they get straight, they can come here. And we should be right there present, shoulder to shoulder with them, telling them about Jesus. But you'll find those books as well, where that's the sole focus, and they basically say these other things don't matter. They absolutely do. But I'll tell you this, that that bottom one is not just the biggest, so it's on the bottom of the pyramid, it's the foundation. If we can't learn how to care for people who are dealing with these issues directly, then we have no right to go and witness people to a church that is un- witness to people and invite them to a church that's unprepared. If we can't demonstrate a plausibility structure that you can follow Jesus and here's what it would look like and it's a good life, then we can't present a good news to the LGBT community. It has to come first. And I'll tell you the truth, the majority of people who have left my church on this issue are not same-sex attracted people. They're straight young advocates who can't wrap their head around this possibly being what the Bible says. But even for them, nothing will make them take a second thought than saying, why are you talking about, about us and them when us are us, when we're all right here? You can say that this is unloving, but why don't you just have to ask Joe if he feels loved, right? It breaks the, the fear that they're most afraid of, is that they become the hater by believing these things. So it has to begin here. It has to start with supporting the people who are dealing front lines with these issues as they follow Jesus. And let me just say one last thing, because the church has done such a poor job of this, it's time for some humility and some experimentation and then a boatload more humility. We'll talk about this tomorrow night, but in advance, a little bit of homework. I'd like you to consider Acts chapter 8, where Philip evangelizes the Ethiopian eunuch. And that's significant as a chapter for one reason, because he's Ethiopian. Now, race in terms of skin color is not as big of an issue in the ancient world as it is today. But it doesn't change the fact that he is clearly and obviously and totally a Gentile. And yet, here a Jewish man comes and tells him about the Jewish Messiah. That's one of Luke's big points. But have you ever thought about the Ethiopian eunuch as a eunuch? Read over it. Think about it. Use a concordance. Find other eunuchs in the Bible and see if you can find why that story is so significant. And I'll tell you what I found next week. But I'll give you the punchline right now. We have to find a way to make room for sexual minorities in the church.